And today on Naturally Educated, we'll be talking about UAE corals in the light of changing climate and coral bleaching. I'm your host as always, Majal Qasimi, and with me, as always, Abdurrahman Zabi. Nice to be with you guys. It's so good to be back, guys. I just wanted to make sure before we got started, if you wanted to tell us about what you guys think, or you, if you had any comments or stories, you can always find us at Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Environment Abu Dhabi, one word. Or you can find us out on the website or on YouTube at Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. Give us a like and hit subscribe wherever you find or listen to your podcasts. So, Abdurrahman, I'm going to be honest. Today, we're talking about coral reefs and really our coastal waters. It's not my expertise, but I do understand that you know a thing or two about that. So why don't you give us your perspective? So, uh, Majid, you know, my experience as a tour guide in uh, Abu Dhabi, I um, happened to go through a lot of material mm -hmm. that kind of like hints at the times of my grandfather and my ancestry in general mm -hmm. and speaking to my parents and, and other elders about how life was back then. Yeah. And as you would know, a lot of the jobs were very based on what we have. You either went to the sea and fished mm -hmm. or you, you were a pearl diver. You, you dived for pearls. Yep. But one job that relates to today's topic actually stood out to me personally and it's coral rocks divers oh, wow so it was an actual job back then where divers would go down in the sea or in the gulf sorry mm -hmm. and they would go and pick out coral rocks and if you see Abu Dhabi Corniche back in the 50s or the, or the 50s, you will see a lot of mounds yeah. of corals just on the shore yeah and I didn't understand why why would you have coral mounds on the shore but then I asked around and back then because people lived on the coast yeah they didn't really have any building material to build houses because there weren't any rocks or anything, so we, we would use these coral rocks and build the houses with, with these coral rocks. Literally, they're lifting bricks out of the water. Literally that. That's crazy. Yeah, just that one point shows the importance of corals to our ancestry and to, to our heritage, sorry. That's building material aside from everything else that the coral reefs do for us. That's really stuck with me. I'm never going to forget that point. There's also this whole thing about where all these corals today exist globally. And obviously in Abu Dhabi as an archipelago, we've got so much shallow water where all of this coral reef exists. But I understand that here there's this like 1,190 square kilometer of coral reefs within Abu Dhabi waters. And you can understand how this is sort of the keystone of survival in our harsh environments before all of the development came in. It really was something that we tied our lives with, whether it was building material or where we got our fish from, or ultimately where we got even some of our prime trade in pearls. That's true. Right? There are all of these aspects that what is underneath the water, literally, and you cannot see, providing so much life and sustenance and opportunity and really economy back at that time. And, and to put it in numbers for, for people listening, an average yield of one square kilometer is around 15 tons of fish and other seafood. So you're talking about so much output, basically, from simply our coastal areas in Abu Dhabi. And pearling having been such a major part of what's happening, the Western Delma Islands being a major place for a lot of that work, it's one thing to say and see in the culture, but I'm sure everybody who's been to Abu Dhabi always marvels at the turquoise waters that they're there. And I remember once my wife 
remarking saying it's like they paint that water there mm. the color is so rich and it is for me always a beautiful way to come into Abu Dhabi when you're driving up to the Yas Island and you see that this color it, it's stunning the other thing that always blows my mind globally is how many communities are actually dependent on coral reefs and these natural underwater biodiversity they support over 500 million people around the world and they provide not only food and income but coastal protection and many more sort of environmental services now they globally also generate about 370 billion dollars per year in goods and services that's crazy yeah so they only cover 0.1% of the earth's surface and are generating that much value so when you when you do that sort of comparison it's quite startling and mm -hmm. almost this parallel if you will to to rainforests mm, yeah imagine speaking of that actually i looked into the importance of corals in medical research mm -hmm. and how scientists have developed treatments for you're talking cardiovascular disease ulcers leukemia lymphoma mm -hmm. and skin cancers all sorts of diseases that could be treated by the chemicals found in in uh, reef plants and, and and animals and you know today when you talk about resistant bacteria and other diseases to still have access to these wild spaces to be able to find new medicines is so critical, especially in light of, you know, the way the world is globalizing and changing these days. The other thing is, you know, there are challenges to these environments and there are impacts to the way we live our lives. One thing that I always have to consider is there are things like coral bleaching, right? And we have yeah. our guest today, Hamad Al-Jailani, who can speak more about that and the work he does with the Environment Agency. For me, to be able to understand this underwater space, if you will, and the biodiversity there is critical because I enjoy my fish mm -hmm. and I want to make sure that that's sustainable. And those fish rely on literally this ecosystem underwater. We might think, and if you've swam near coral reefs, there's jagged structures, but they also serve to calm waters mm. so that you can have these fish reproduce and allow much of what we understand as spawning grounds or reproducing grounds for these fish to populate. So without them, you lose your fish. It's, it's all tied together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned how these coral reefs calm the water or the waves. Mm -hmm. Is that like by a, a big percentage? How, how impactful is it? So what I've got here in the research is that the energy that stopped is about 97%. Wow. Actually serves as flood defense in certain communities and regions as well. There's literally something close to 45,000 miles or 71,000 kilometers of coastline worldwide that's protected because they have coral reefs. Wow, that's, that's incredible. We're looking at like 200 million people depending on coral reefs simply to save their homes from storm surges and waves. You know, speaking on that point, nothing for me uh, painted that picture more vividly than being in one of the islands in the tropics. Mm -hmm. It's called Mauritius. I'm not sure if our listeners are familiar with you, familiar with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mauritius is basically an island yeah. almost in the middle of the Indian Ocean, surrounded by huge ocean waves crushing mm -hmm. almost to the... Almost all directions. Yeah. And so I was standing on the shore there and from a distance, you can see the big waves coming into the island, mm. but then within an instant, they're gone. Yeah. And I was thinking, why does that happen? And Mauritius is actually naturally surrounded by a big number of corals right. that protect the actual island from the, the natural buffer. Yeah, exactly. That's incredible. Well, listen, there's so much to learn and so much to hear as well from our guests. So Hamad Jailani, 
the assistant scientist in marine habitats, works in the field for the Environment Agency of Abu Dhabi, and it's really good to have you here on Naturally Educated. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're talking about corals and coral reefs today. Could you give us an intro maybe to get the audience oriented on coral reefs? Sure. I'll just explain myself a little bit. Uh, I'm an Amarthi scientist. I grew up by the sea, diving, fishing, and I grew up really connected to the sea. So corals for me is really important. I see it as one of the most important habitats in the UAE and in Abu Dhabi. They're the most biodiverse ecosystems on the planet. They're only rivaled by tropical rainforest. Yeah. And this is uh, doubly important here as we don't have rainforest in the UAE. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's by far, in a way, the most biologically dense habitat that we have here. So can you tell us a little bit about corals as well? Like what kind or types exist? I'll just talk about their ecology. So corals are basically animals like little invertebrates made up of many colony of polyps. They're basically a keystone species. And that means they're very important at telling and indicating the health of an environment. Mm-hmm. They're also extremely important because they're ecosystem engineers. That basically means that they're species that can modify the environment in a significant way by creating new habitats or even altering the conditions of that habitat. Interesting, yeah. I wanted to understand a bit more about corals in the local context. Why are they important specifically, let's say, to the Gulf and to the biodiversity of our waters? This is an excellent question. So it's no surprise that our sea is known as one of the most harshest seas around anywhere in the world. We have some of the most incredibly high temperatures, hypersaline water and turbid conditions. So our corals are able to withstand these conditions at a remarkable rate. Unlike any other coral around the world, they're able to withstand temperatures above 35 degrees, which will kill most, if not all, corals around the world. So there's no coral around the world that can withstand such intense conditions. They're also resilient to a lot of other things like high salinity, bad weather, and they can come back from any bad, sick, environmental catastrophe. What are they, when you said they're sort of ecosystem engineers and services, what are they doing for all the other organisms around them? What, where is the importance there? So basically, there's many concerning stony corals, which make their skeleton out of calcium carbonate, and that basically builds reef structures and complicated 3D models underwater. These 3D models underwater are very attractive to different species of animals, fish, and different invertebrates. Mm -hmm. So basically, it creates homes for many animals. And from there, it stores a lot of carbon dioxide. It comes a carbon sink. So so literally, these are the civil engineers of the underwater world. They're building (laughs) the housing developments (laughs) for all the fish that we rely on to feed our, our, our people. Exactly. They also provide a lot of other support. They help protect coasts from surge. They're also connected to other environments. You have to view the environment as a single entity. You know, mangroves are connected to seagrass meadows, which are connected to coral reefs. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's all an interconnected system. And it's, if one system goes down, the other ones are compromised as well. I see. So Hamad, we, we understand that the world overall lost around 14% of corals, of the corals population, let's say. You know, this is obviously devastating news. And as you guys uh, pointed out, that it's important for different reasons. I wonder how can we stop this? So this is both a simple and complicated question. Mm-hmm. The answer is on a global scale, we basically have to introduce carbon monoxide, mm-hmm. you know, carbon dioxide sorry, mm-hmm. and emissions in general. And, you know, we got to make more rigid environmental policies and try to control the environmental factors that are contributing to increase seawater temperature. Mm-hmm. But other ways to help mitigate the issue is uh, we can create protected areas and help increase restoration efforts as well. So 
we're talking about a lot of this restoration and, and what we have to do, but what here is really threatening the coral reef? Like what, what impacts do these coral reefs have to deal with? So firstly, coral reefs here face a lot of adversity, not just from the environment, but also from coastal development. Things from dredging, pollution, desalination plants. After I just mentioned to you that they're already at their physiological limits mm -hmm. of high temperature, high salinity. On top of that, you're increasing the pressure on them with other human factors. Further to that, the water temperature is increasing gradually every year with bleaching events occurring more frequent. And the best example is we had massive bleaching event in 2017 and 2021, last year in summer. Of course, yeah. Interesting you point that out, actually. I wanted to dig deeper into this question. So from what I understand, bleaching events uh, usually happen when the water temperature increases, so when we have warmer temperatures. But I want to understand from your point of view, what is exactly coral bleaching and what happens when, when that happens to the corals? So corals, they have a symbiotic relationship with algae. A zoo, called the zooncelli. And basically, that's what gives these corals their vibrant colors, are these algae within their cells. And when the temperature increases, zooncelli becomes toxic to the corals, so they expel this uh, zooncelli. The zooncelli also gives, provides them with food. So once they expel these algae, the corals turn pale white and they basically starve to death. Mm, interesting, okay. Because they don't have their algae body. And if they bleach for too long, that basically leads to their death. So... Hamad, you're describing this sort of coral bleaching, but I understand you've just come back from a survey. Yeah. You've been out in the field. Could you tell us a little bit about what you do and any news from the latest surveys? Yeah, so I'm a scientist at the Environment Agency. I'm specialized in marine habitats, specifically corals. Mm -hmm. And every year we do a biannual survey. So there's two surveys a year. The agency has been doing this for roughly 10 years. But in the last five years, we've really ramped up the data. Mm -hmm. And uh, these surveys are important. We do one survey just before the summer. So we get the status of the coral before entering the critical period. Yeah. And then we do one post-summer, after the summer. So we get to understand what happened to the corals after the heating period. And this tells us a lot about how they're handling these different summers. In that survey, what are you doing? I mean, are you just getting in the water and taking pictures or, or how does that work? So the survey is basically, we go into the water, we first of all, we assess the conditions. We see how bathymetry is. Is there a lot of algae? Is there something unnatural? Is there too many of one species of, say, like too many sea urchins? There's too much, any like biofouling from other animals. Then we lay down the transect, which is roughly 30 meters. We lay down six transects and we take 11 images. So we end up with roughly 66 images randomly placed around the coral reef. This is the same coral reef that we've been assessing for many years. So we have data to corroborate with what we're doing currently right now. So we get these images and we analyze them back in the office. Mm -hmm. And we get very important information about benthic cover, coral population dynamics, a lot of information on how the corals are basically doing. And so 10 years of data and ramping up, that's really something to commend. I want to understand and help the listener understand that with all of this, what is it revealing? Like, what, do you, what are the things you are looking for? What are you reading from the historical data today? Oh, it's very interesting, actually, because there's a lot of shifts in population. There used to be a more dominant species of a type of coral, mm -hmm. Acropora, which is basically like a tree coral. It's very distinct. It's basically the flagship coral. Mm -hmm. If anyone sees it, they know it's exactly that this is a coral. Yeah. And that coral is basically almost extinct. You can, it's very hard to find it in the southern Gulf. I'm talking about like specifically Abu Dhabi waters. Yeah. 
So we're seeing that another coral is, is becoming the more dominant coral, which is parietes, a uh, bouldering coral. And it's becoming the primary coral for building habitats, as it's more resilient than Acropora and it's more stable. And it's very interesting because we get to see the bleaching events are actually very key. Because when we do the survey after bleaching event, we understand what corals are more affected by this change in temperature. And we also get to see this 2022 survey is extremely important because last year we had the bleaching event. So now we get to see how the corals are reacting. How are they recovering? Are they showing adaptability to this bleaching event? And believe it or not, a small amount of bleaching doesn't hurt the coral. But if it's a big one like the last, last year's one, mm. it's pretty bad. But a, a small amount of bleaching is pretty good for a coral as it helps them adapt slowly to withstanding these intense temperatures. Yeah, interesting. So I guess bleaching is part of the natural you know, cycle. I'm not, sh- I'm not sure if that's true. It's, it's part of the natural cycle if it's in small numbers because we do have something called localized summer bleaching, which is Say like in a reef, maybe 5 to 10% are bleached. But bleaching event is not natural. This is 100% completely unnatural. Mm. Yeah, this is extreme. Extreme. Like 98% of all corals are bleached during a bleaching event, which is pretty visual. So actually, you mentioned you mentioned a couple of times the uh, bleaching event in 2017. But I heard that there was even a bigger bleaching event in the 90s. Explain to us these two events and how important were they for your understanding about bleaching events? So bleaching events, they basically reset the balance in, when it comes to coral, especially big ones like 2017 and the 2021. Particularly the 2017 one, it shuffled the species balance. Mm. You know, they, There used to be a lot of Acropora and many different kinds of species, Plagi all these kind of like very dynamically 3D kind of modeling corals that give very unique shape to the reef. And they're no longer like the dominant corals anymore. We have more of the parietes, which are, I wouldn't say more dull, but the reefs these days aren't as complex in their structures as they used to be. So it does alter a lot of things. Another thing that we talk about a lot, a lot about the corals, but another thing, the bleaching event does kills a lot of invertebrates as well. And uh, we know the importance of vertebrates when it comes to being like fish food and basically providing the food systems with all the small nutrients they need. Mm. So it's basically a reset is what I'm trying to say. So coral bleaching is quite a big deal. Right? Yeah. What is that relationship with the bleaching and CO2? What happens when you have that bleaching other than the die off of all of this biodiversity? What else are we, is there, are there other factors that we have to consider? In the context of uh, the UAE, because of the Gulf being so salty, we don't have much ocean acidification as other places in the world do. But CO2 does play a major factor in affecting invertebrates because a lot of invertebrates, including corals, crabs, and other crustaceans, all have their exoskeleton made of calcium carbonate. Mm. And if you have too much CO2 in the water, that takes away the calcium and uh, basically increases the acidity of the water, essentially melting their exoskeleton. Whoa. Yeah. And it can get to that that extreme. It can, yeah. Not here, but in other places around the world. Not here. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, with all these developments and uh, impacts that the coral bleaching events and so on are having on corals, that highlights the importance of the job that you guys do. And uh, I want to kind of turn the gears here and and talk about what we can do to solve or mitigate some of these issues. So tell us more about whether effective strategies to reverse coral bleaching can be developed. Can that be reached? It definitely can, but it needs a lot of work, specifically when it comes to policies. The overarching issue with global warming and climate change obviously comes from environmental policies, as not just here, but also around the world. But as individuals, like for a government entity, 
it's very important that we also try to do the best we can with creating protected areas, doing as much uh, restoration programs as we can, and also raising the bells whenever there's a breaching event or even raising awareness to the community. The thing is, a lot of people don't know, like say there's a breaching event happening in 2017. I'm not sure if you guys knew about it. Or, true, true. You know, yeah. <laughs> Was it in the paper kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, where, where do you get your coral <laughs> news from? Exactly. So it's very important to be aware because for us, it could be like a hot summer here, but in the in the sea, it's basically like a forest fire. Mm, wow. Like, oh, yeah, it's, it's that bad. When you go dive and you just see everything pale and white, fish dying from hypoxia, which is lack of oxygen because it's so hot. Mm-hmm. And also, last year, we also had a lot of die-offs from green sea turtles. Oh, no way. Yeah, that too. Wow. So with, with, with all of this action in protected areas, can you give us an example of what's been done for rehabilitating these coral reefs? And then more so, is there anything that's happening that's not in the water that's tackling the CO2 issue? So yeah, let's deal with the first question. So mm-hmm. the Environment Agency has a restoration program, mm-hmm. coral restoration program that was established in early 2021. And the aim of this program was initially to return 1 million fragments by the end of 2023. But we might be able to achieve that, but we're trying to shift that scoped as many resilient corals as we can. Mm-hmm. So basically, we're trying to find the most strongest corals around the Gulf, yeah. try to get them to the nursery, fragment them, and then spread them all over. So we get to spread that resilient genetics. Mm-hmm. So we always think of coral restoration as just trying to you know, multiply as many corals as we can. But the coral reef is not just corals, you know, it's a whole system. True. And you want to return the whole ecological function of a coral reef. So that's something else we're trying to figure out. If we need, say we need to restore a site, a coral reef site, we don't just need to return corals. We need to, say, get all the urchins, get all the snails, get all the macroalgae, you know, get, get all the, mm-hmm. get the whole system running, basically. The biodiversity that exists around that coral system, essentially, so that you have a complement of organisms, not just the coral itself. Exactly. Basically, it turned the function of that ecosystem. And what about that CO2, essentially outside of the water? Is there anything that can be done around that? If we talk about an indivi- as individually, like say me or you, mm-hmm. obviously recommend that you try to have a more sustainable life, you know, try to not be wasteful, mm-hmm. carpool, etc. These, these small things make a difference as a community. Yeah. Like as a society, we definitely need to cut down on using carbon emissions, basically. That, that's the main driver of seawater temperature. Right. Okay. So CO2 in the environment. Now, I was going back to this whole fragmenting of the corals and then getting them out into the environment and essentially sweeping out rehabilitation or this reseeding, if you will. Yeah. Now that's huge. That's already a lot of work, but how do we scale up the cooling down, if you will? Like, how do we make sure we're not heating up all these coral reefs? Uh, It's a bigger challenge. Basically what you're saying is a global challenge. It requires a whole different governments cooperating with each other to make sure that we're not releasing enough emissions into the air. And there's no real technology that can target schooling specific reefs. Mm. And if they can, it'll be like small scale. And the energy to say, say the energy to cool a reef might be just as bad as, you know, releasing the emissions to even cool it in the first place. So in the end of the day, it definitely needs like a full global effort. Because whatever happens here affects other places in the world. When the Geert Barrier Reef gets a heating event in their summer, which is our winter, we, we follow after. Like we, we get a heating event right after. But what we can do, for example, to help mitigate this issue is help corals adapt to this increased temperature. And we are seeing actually coral adaptability. This is one of the hopeful stories in this. Even though, yes, we're losing a lot of corals to bleaching and increased seawater temperature. But 
and the data is showing that they are able to slowly get some ground. In 2017, the bleaching event, the temperature that triggered the bleaching event was 37 degrees. In 2021, it was 38.9. Wow. So we're almost reaching sauna levels of heat, you know? Wow. And yet, the percentage of coral loss is actually less than 2017. So the temperature is hotter, mm. but the loss of coral is less. So that basically means they're, they're slowly adapting to this. Obviously, it's not the solution, the final solution, but it's something, you know, we can work with for now. Of course, mm. yeah. You know, when you mentioned how uh, the world is connected in different ways, it's a sobering feeling when you understand that every part of the world that is impacted by climate change or CO2 and so on impacts us in a lot of ways as well. You've mentioned rainforest earlier, and we all know that how the Amazon is seen as the lungs of the earth because basically absorbs so much of the CO2 that is in our air. While, while these natural solutions certainly need to be reinforced and supported and help us sort of mitigate some of this, some of these effects that will inevitably happen. I wonder what else we can do when it comes to technology. Tell us more about specifically marine permaculture. What could it do to help mitigate some of these issues? Uh, I'll go with technology first. As there's actually a lot of applications with technology. One is, for example, using uh, AI modeling. That's one way you can use to help basically raise alarms before bleaching events happen. If you can get a modeling program that you feed data, like you constantly feed data from weather patterns to seawater temperatures to water quality, it can easily tell you if there's a bleaching event or even any kind of environmental event could occur within a week or two or even three weeks. And then from there, you can basically act upon that. That's one way you can use technology. Other ways is using high-definition drones that can go mm. basically survey the reef like better than any of us can ever do, you know modeling it in 3D or, and giving you exact models of the reef yep. and its complex structures. And then from there, that can help in restoration. You can target which areas you want to restore, which areas are more favorable to plant your corals in. So that's one way you can use technology. In terms of permaculture, I'm not sure if it's applicable here. Even restoration, coral restoration, it's a learning experience. It's never been done to the scale that we've done it here. And I'm learning a lot, you know. For example, our seas, if you notice, it's very green and very turbid because of the incredible amount of nutrients there are in, in the Gulf. Mm. And that caused a lot of issue in biofouling. So unlike uh, grown corals in the Caribbean or Southeast Asia, here we have to be on top of the maintenance. Otherwise, our corals will be overtaken by oysters, algae, a whole host of different animals. It's just a constant uphill battle when it comes to restoration here. So let's say, in theory, you've got seawater air conditioning, right? The whole premise is you're using cold water to cool, you know, cold water from lakes or from deep water areas. You can cool buildings, military bases, and entire cities. Could you essentially do that to the coral reef? I mean, diverting cold current or cold water into a warm current and somehow cool down? Or is this just science fiction I'm talking about? You can definitely do something of that degree. It'll be very difficult mm. in, for example, Abu Dhabi, because most of Abu Dhabi is extremely shallow. Like, we don't have much deep water. On average, the deepest, it goes around 20 to 30 meters. Another thing we found out in 2021, even down to 25 meters, the water temperature is 36 degrees. Wow. What? Yeah. Wow, that's warm. Yeah, yeah. Even We, we even found some deep corals uh, at 21 meters, and they were all bleached. Mm. So wow. it, it's hard to escape. But, for example, don't know if you know Sir Bunair Island. Yes. Yeah. 
that's a good example of how the Gulf's bathymetry plays in favor of the corals in that area because right in front of the island is a deep ravine and, a, and through that ravine, the main current passes through, mm-hmm. which is a cold kind of, it's colder because it's coming, yeah, yeah, it's coming from the Indian Ocean. And that's how corals there are doing better than any other places in the Gulf. Mm. You've used the word again, bathymetry. I think we need to qualify that for some of the listeners. We said it earlier. Okay. So bathymetry. Bathymetry is basically the the bottom of the sea. Like, is it the hard bottom? Is it... uh... The geography of the bottom of the sea. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, cool. I heard it the first time. I was like, you hear that right? (laughs) Yeah. That, that's a good example of like what you mentioned, which is cool water coming, upwelling, coming to an island that's very close to that area and cooling the water around it, therefore making it easier for corals to manage. But the reality is the temperature is going to gradually slowly increase, whether it's fast or slow. So I think our best hope for the future of corals is to just help them adapt to it mm-hmm. for the time being. You know? Yeah, and uh, hopefully at some point the world comes together and works to solve climate change, which in many ways we are doing it. Obviously in the UAE, we're, we're hosting COP next year. So hopefully right. that's uh, that kind of brings the world together to take even bigger steps than we already did. Okay, let's talk more about the local context again. So you mentioned a bit about rehabilitation project, specifically the coral reef rehabilitation project here in Abu Dhabi. Part of the announcement was more than 1 million colonies of coral reefs will be planted through this program. Tell us more about it and exactly what the UAE in general is doing in this field. So I can mainly speak about Abu Dhabi and what the agency is doing. Like I mentioned before, we launched this program and the initial aim was to return 1 million fragments to the different reefs around the area. And that could be very possible, it's achievable, but if you want to achieve a proper, like a let's say, a more favorable result, I think we should look into more adaptability, trying to help the corals adapt and basically getting the ecosystem functions running. I mean, it's true. I mean, there are more more uh, effective ways, I suppose. Uh, but I, I do want us to explore a bit about this project. What does it mean that we are planting all these colonies? It's quite simple. Basically, we went and we tried to scope out the strongest corals around different parts in Abu Dhabi. Corals that are, let's say, in shallower waters, which tend to be hotter than more bodies of water. Corals that look healthy despite having been through several bleaching events. Therefore, you know they can definitely withstand or have a good capacity to withstand high water temperatures. And we try to take this coral and fragment it and spread it in different places around the Gulf in hopes to increase the resiliency of other reefs. Hmm, Interesting. So the way to repopulate uh, corals is you fragment them. Can you kind of walk us through the process? So as I mentioned before, corals are made of small polyps and colonies. If you break a piece of coral and basically snap it or break it into another half and you plant it, both of these corals will grow separately in its own form. And the more you break it, the more corals you make. So you're basically making several different corals when you break a single piece. And you just, you break these pieces up and you put them in water, is that it? And they just... Yeah, it's all done in water. Basically, we take the corals from a reef and then we bring it to the nursery and we break them into many pieces. And then they grow. Actually, some of them, in the beginning of 2021, they were the size of my pinky. And now some of them are actually the size of my my entire fist. Wow. So, yeah, they're they're growing really well. And uh, it just goes to show that they can definitely survive even the 2021 bleaching event. Well, okay. So hold on. When you you say they started as your pinky and now they're big as your fist, over how much time is that? Three years. That took three years. Yeah. This coral is, this. I'm talking about parietes, which Mm -hmm. is... 
one of the slower cor- growing corals and the other bouldering ones are also very slow. The fastest growing one is Acropora, which is the branching coral. Mm-hmm. And it's Achilles heel because it grows so fast. It's also sensitive. Sense, yeah. It has a lot of what we like to call a symbiote load. Mm-hmm. So it can absorb a lot of friendly algae. Mm-hmm. And that works in its favor to grow fast, but it also works against it when it, when it's too hot because they have so much symbiote load. Yeah. They basically throw their friendly algae very early and they die very soon. Mm. So rapid growers versus slow growers. But the, it gives you a bit of a time frame of what it takes to grow the corals that we have today. Yeah, definitely. Right? At the scale that we have. Definitely. Coral restoration is, I can tell you for sure, it's not a three-year program. For example, the Florida restoration program has been going for 10 to 15 years and they're still getting you know, wow. mixed results so it takes a long time to establish these restoration programs the key is to stay consistent and to keep it going because the cost of doing nothing is much worse in my opinion i just wanted to kind of elaborate a bit on the fact that the corals in our gulf are uniquely kind of adapted to withstand the climate change issue yeah and i heard that there was a study recently i think by a, even an nyu professor who kind of was studying how they can plant these corals in other parts of the world so that they can help with the mitigation in, 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 you know, in other reefs, basically. I don't know if that's something you were familiar with. I'm yet. not quite familiar. With, I, know, I know what Professor talked about, but <laughs> I'm not quite familiar with the exact study yeah. about that coral. But from what I understand, that what makes our corals particularly special is the friendly algae, that's the symbiote. The symbiote that's found here specifically in the Gulf is not really found anywhere else in the world. And literally the moment you leave the Gulf and you enter the Indian Ocean, you no longer find that symbiote. So it's maybe if you can somehow plant that symbiote in other corals around the world, you can give them a better threshold Mm. to withstand higher temperatures. But as we all know, it's like a give or take. So we're not sure what that could do. You know, maybe it might make them slower growers. Maybe it might introduce a host of different problems. Mm. So it's something that definitely needs to be explored. But the thing about our corals is the rest of the world is looking at the Gulf corals. They're basically the on the front line, you know, of climate change. Every time a mm-hmm. uh, bleaching event happens, it doesn't happen as in, as intense as it happens here, you know. Mm-hmm. It's 38 degrees Celsius is no joke. And, uh, Definitely not. Yeah, they call this the modern lab. Mm-hmm. What happens here could happen to the rest of the world mm-hmm. in the next 30, 50 years. Well, seeing as we're seeing all of this happen up front, I wonder then... If, Hamid, you might give us some some idea of, of what we can do to help or what should we not be doing is maybe also a good way to look at it. Like I, like I said before, just try to be as sustainable as you can. And like if you're talking about individually, just try to be like live a green life, be sustainable, try not to be wasteful and try to reduce your, let's say, carbon footprint and try to support more green uh, initiatives. It's a whole thing. It's not just corals, you know. Whatever is killing the corals is mm-hmm. causing wildfires in Europe and droughts. It's all, this, it's all one, you know. Let's be real here. So it's a whole single system. Mm-hmm. When it comes to, say, corals here yeah there are other other things obviously other than just bleaching like you get we have a lot of desalination plants a lot of land reclamation and dredging a lot of these things you know make it already hard for the corals who are already at the tip of their physiological limits so maybe try to reduce those or try to mitigate those or find ways to make it less intrusive on corals Mm -hmm. yeah well let's hope we achieve some of those uh, goals and we do mitigate and we we do keep our corals because it is important of course so you know obviously me and you and Majid we understand that this is important how can we kind of amplify this message how can we raise awareness about what's happening to the corals from your perspective yeah 
from my perspective, I think we need to acknowledge that, you know, climate change affects even like a lot of people, you know, don't see the effects of climate change directly. Yeah. Especially if you're here in the UAE, other than it's being hot during the summer. Mm. There's no real indication on land that it's uh, that bad. So, for example, if you're a diver or a snorkeler and you see a bleached coral while you're in the beach or sorry, off the coast, like you can inform the general community or inform even the agency that oh, there's a bleach coral. Or if you see something, like if you're near a coral reef and then you see something that might be infected in some way, say a dredging operation or even illegal fishing, for example, that also affects corals. Because if you take mm. a lot of the, some of the fish that help take care of the corals, if you overfish them, that also affects the corals, like the algae eaters mm-hmm. that also could helping the corals get back. Well, Hamad, Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks. It's my pleasure. We love every minute. Really, corals, I like the idea of those are the forests we have here in the Gulf. So I'd like to thank Hamad Jailani, who is Assistant Scientist in Marine Habitats for the Environment Agency of Abu Dhabi. Thank you for being on Naturally Educated. Thank you very much. Abdurrahman, why don't you let them know, listeners, what they can do? Yes, thank you, Hamad, again. Uh, Guys, get in touch, uh, reach out with your comments or a story that you have to tell. Tell us what you think about the show. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn at Environment Abu Dhabi, one word. You can also find us on our website or on YouTube at the Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. Give us a like, hit the subscribe button wherever you find or listen to our podcast. So signing off for today, it's me, Majid. And it's me, Abdurrahman. Nice to see you guys. Take care and bye.